Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. Joins you today by Noah Gedrimas. Uh, he is the Vice President of Strategy at a fascinating company called GPR. Uh, and he's here to talk to us today about what they do and the technology and what he's seeing uh, developing in his industry. So thank you for joining us today, Noah. So it's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. I'm, I'm really excited about uh, about being on this podcast and, and explaining a bit about what we do at GPR. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. If we could start, uh, as all this has become traditional on the show, before we get into the company, tell us a bit about yourself. You know, we have a, a really wide listenership of the program uh, from younger people thinking about careers in science, technology and engineering to older, more experienced people, VPs, uh, C-suites in OEMs and tier ones. So it's, it always amazes me the breadth of the show, but people are really interested in knowing what your personal story is. How did you get into doing what you're doing now in a really cutting edge uh, business and environment. So what's your story? I'm glad you asked. I, um, I'm one of those really fortunate individuals that knew from like a really young age what I wanted to do and, um, you know, what I like. So, you know, I was probably five or six years old taking stuff apart at home and, and, um, you know, all through, uh, high schools, uh, you know, building cars and four wheelers and, and working with my hands. And so I, I knew I wanted to be an engineer from, from really early on, uh, specifically the mechanical engineering really appealed to me. So, you know, race cars and vehicle dynamics and engines, transmissions, these sort of things. Um, so that led to my undergrad where I went to school in New Jersey for mechanical engineering and did a lot of hands-on projects, which are it's great about engineering is you really get to uh, especially at the the good engineering schools, work with your hands a lot. Uh, I worked on a lot of like um, off-road vehicles and then did some clean energy projects, which was probably my first entrance into like robotics and mechatronics. So uh, built a, a machine I was really proud of uh, with a team called eHawk, which was electricity from high altitude wind with kite. Uh, so it's a great acronym our professor came up with. And we used this kiteboarding kite and it could fly, um, you know, hundreds of feet in the air and generate electricity from its motion. And so that had IMUs and cameras and, and uh, different servo motors and things to control it. And that was kind of my first introduction to mechatronics and robotics. Oh, wow. I've seen that on YouTube. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we were really early. That was back in 2013 or, or so we were working on that. And, um, you know, up to that point, all my engineering had been. Uh, a lot of, you know, using pulleys and gears and four bar mechanisms to get things to happen in a certain, certain way, in a certain order, sort of traditional mechanical engineering. And then once you are exposed to, you know, we used a lot of Arduino stuff, then uh, microcontrollers and servos and sensors, you realize how powerful they are um, and how quick you can change things and tune PID controllers, things like this. And it just grabbed my attention immediately. And uh, I really dived into it there. And later that summer after that first Ehawk project, I got an internship at Virginia Tech uh, at the um, 
Transportation Research Center, I think it was called, or, or something to that effect. The project was to build a chassis of a, like a one-fifth scale of an Audi vehicle that the grad students could program to autonomously park. So uh, first I built the chassis with a, you know, the crux steering and uh, servo motor and whatnot to steer it, um, and then had time left over the summer and then programmed it and made my own algorithm to do self-parking using like an ultrasonic sensor. And that was massive for me. You know, that was sort of the introduction to autonomous driving there. After that, I started learning more and more about it. Um, right then was when Chris Ermsim was talking a lot about the Google autonomous driving project at the time. It was before Waymo. And I was learning more and more about that and really grabbed my attention. So then um, graduated uh, undergrad, moved out to Michigan for um, to work in the auto industry. So I always say, you know, most mechanical engineers end up passing through Michigan at some point uh, just because of the huge auto industry there and there's so much. So I did like uh, some mechanical stuff uh, like belt drives and things like this, uh, CVT design at Gates Corporation for like three years. Went to get my master's degree then and I, I still remember I was in a, a vehicle dynamics class in grad school, and my professor was uh, worked at Continental Automotive as a tire engineer. And at the time, all I knew about Continental was they made tires, really. Um, but he took us to visit the uh, engineering facility in Auburn Hills, Michigan. We sort of saw all these things, and one thing I saw there was an autonomous vehicle Continental was building called HAD, which was highly autonomous driving vehicle. It was like a level four highway autonomy vehicle. And uh, I still remember like the, the class trying to go back to the, to the university, to Oakland university. And I was there for another like 30 minutes and they had to drag me out of there because I had so many questions I was learning. And I just got back, um, later that night and I was thinking, I just had no idea that there was this autonomous driving development happening so close to me. I just always thought, oh, that's all the stuff they're doing in California and, you know, in, in Pittsburgh. And, you know, these are super um, elite people working on this. Uh, and then to see it so close, I just completely shifted my career. I moved my degree into more mechatronics focus and more controls and sent, I, I still have the emails, like 12 separate emails over a year to the Continental team that was working at to say, hey, uh, here's this MATLAB script I wrote, or here's this paper about uh, a test drive I thought was interesting. You know, would you please hire me to work on this project because <laughs> I want to do it. And finally, like everything aligned, they hired me. They gave um, in. <laughs> yeah, they gave in. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm still a really good friend with the hiring manager uh, that hired me and kind of took that chance because I'm just getting good at like belt drive design, you know, the serpentine belts at, at gates. And that kind of scared me. I was like, I don't, I don't really want to be an expert in rubber belts, you know, I want to learn something else. So then I went to, to Continental um, and had just an incredible experience there. I spent uh, seven years doing research and development for different autonomous driving technologies. Um, so everything from that highway autonomy project to uh, electric shuttles, like uh, passenger shuttles that you'd operate on a college campus, uh, did some projects with Easy Mile, did uh, valet parking and we called holistic urban driving. So um, uh, autonomously parking cars and parking garages, uh, semi-truck autonomy. So, um, you, you might've heard about the Continental Aurora partnership. So it was a little bit engaged in that towards the end of my, my tenure at Continental. And it just was this uh, incredible experience for me because I got to learn about all the operational domains, all these different technologies that go into autonomy and then apply them in the real world. And, um, 
about 18 months ago, I joined GPR. Uh, and so GPR is the company I'm currently at. It's a startup. Uh, we're out of Boston. We really have a different approach towards localization and mapping for autonomy. And I jumped over to GPR because my experience at Continental, I knew what a gap this was in so many operational domains that I was really excited to be a part of it. So that kind of takes me through most of my autonomy career. But what was it that caught you and, uh, and dragged you in? I'm, I, I really like this, uh, the, the first principles thinking, you know, uh, uh, you know, that you can apply to different engineering challenges and in the space of autonomy, there's really, you know, three or four big problems that you need to solve. Um, and they're most of the biggest problems are perception based. You need to perceive dynamic objects, which are things like moving cars and pedestrians. Uh, and that's where prediction comes in. You need to detect uh, sort of static objects, which is like free space detection. And that's, you, you know, that's seen as there a free area to drive. And um, the, lastly, you need to know what I call drivable area. And this is sort of where a vehicle can, can navigate and there's enough road surface to support the vehicle and it's a driving lane. So you're not driving on the sidewalk, let's say, uh, even if it's free space, meaning that it's, um, there's, there's no objects in the way. The, the first two, you really need perception for. So for dynamic objects, um, you, you, you need to have good cameras, LIDARs, radars, whatever the case is to see what's around you. Similarly for the free space detection, but for the drivable area portion, almost every company uses mapping and localization. And so basically the, the mapping portion is you have this pre-existing understanding of an environment where the driving area is, that can be very helpful for a lot of operational domains. But then to really effectively use that pre-existing map, you have to have localization and you have to know where your vehicle is with the high accuracy. When you're trying to solve the localization problem, really all, all localization methods use some sort of a landmark or some sort of a datum that you're measuring with your onboard sensors on your vehicles. And then you know the position of that datum relative to, say, the lane center or crosswalk, uh, you know, the, the feature you care about. So examples of this is like maybe lane markers, right? So you often will use a camera to detect a lane marker, and then you know the lane marker's position relative to the center of, uh, you know, center of the driving lane. So that's one way you can align the map. Other more common ways are like GPS or GNSS based. And in this case, the landmark is a satellite. So it's really like a space mark, but in, in general, same principle, you're measuring your position to a satellite and then the position of the satellite to your map coordinate. Back to kind of the first principles aspect of it. If you're trying to choose datums or landmarks that you want to use for positioning, you know, what's important in those landmarks? I, I always think it's you want them to be resilient over time. So you don't want them moving or changing. So for example, if you're trying to use trees or uh, lane markers, uh, you don't want the lane markers wearing off the road. You don't want leaves falling off the trees. Uh, if you're trying to use the edges of a parking garage, you don't want a car to block your sensor's view of the edge. That's really where the GPR comes in. So the ground penetrating radar that we use allows us to take data from actually underneath the surface of the road. So up to three meters deep. So we're still using landmarks or data uh, to position, but our data is coming from underneath the car, meters beneath the car. So we're not like reinventing the concept of landmark localization. We're just using data from underground. Yeah, yeah, mine was too. When I, you know, when I first was exposed to it, my first thought was, 
well, wait a minute, if that works, that would be great because my sensor is never blocked. So if you're, if you're trying to use a LIDAR to detect, let's say, uh, um, signposts or te uh, telephone poles or even lane markers, if you have a semi-truck in front of your vehicle, your LIDAR or your camera or your radar, whatever you're trying to use, can no longer see the features you're trying to localize off because they're blocked. And that's not even bringing in, you know, adverse weather, right? So if it's snowing or it's raining or this, you know, those also block your sensors. But if you're looking down, we never have anything that gets between the ground penetrating radar and the data layer. So we have 100% availability. How do you, what do you do with that? How do you make that work into something that's then a useful reference? Um, so that's, that's really what grabbed my attention. So on a first principle standpoint, uh, when I was looking at this before I joined, I said, this is a, a extremely powerful idea. You know, if you can, if you really can pull subterranean data and use that as the data, and you, you know, if you can see through a meter of concrete with your radar, you know, a layer of snow or mud or debris or something like this isn't going to affect it very much at all. What useful, what are you getting out of that subterranean data? Like you, so that, that was my question, right? So I said, okay, that's a cool idea, but does it work? Like, I don't, I, you know, like that sounds cool, but does it work? And I had uh, uh, a lot of interest in, well, is the data unique enough? So the data that's coming out of the ground from this section of highway to, you know, move 20 centimeters forward, is there a big enough change in the subterranean environment to position with? What type of features or landmarks are you using underground? Um, and how do I know that they're not going to change over time? So as the, you know, as sinkholes are forming and the ground shifting and and moisture's going in, how do I know the return's not going to change? Um, we're not using specific infrastructure. So that's important to note. So it's not like we're explicitly looking for pipes or rebar or uh, different layers in concrete. We're looking at the radar image itself. So we're looking at the return from the radar, which is giving us sort of different intensity profiles for different depths and for different channels of our radar. And then we're using that sort of uh, uh, landscape, or you could think of it sort of like a point cloud. It's not really a point cloud. You can think of it sort of like a point cloud. And we're pulling out distinct features or character that we know will hold up over time and is highly unique. And then that is the matching element. So an example, you, it's not perfect, but you kind of think of it like maybe a QR code. You know, so when you're looking at a QR code or a fingerprint, it's not that there's some like big star in the middle that you're matching, but you're taking the profile of all the areas where white goes to black and black goes to white uh, in a QR code, and then you can use that as a matching element. So in the same way, that's how our our matching works. Are you creating like a map of, of that data and using it in a kind of absolute sense, or are you using it for sort of relative, so you, you can judge speed, for example. Because I know people do use radar for, particularly off-highway, for trying to judge speed. Like, how, what are you actually using that for? How do you use that data? So it's it's a landmark localization, which means it's like a map and track. So we have to map an area beforehand to understand what that subterranean data looks like. And then any other future vehicles that pass over that area can localize or position with, you know, centimeter accuracy. So it's a, a map and track. And there's really two kind of implementations that get applied, you know, where, where you can look at sort of the high level uh, driving mission. The first is uh, what we call the, uh, you know, virtual rail or um, almost like a virtual train track. And with this concept, 
you have the mapping vehicle or the first vehicle to drive records the subterranean data, this GPR track, uh, and the data is roughly the width of the vehicle. And we can record a route. Uh, so for example, if you had a, a shuttle application that, that operated a college campus, you would have to drive the shuttle manually uh, on the driving route and then record that as a track. And then all future vehicles, including that vehicle that want to autonomously follow that track, can log the current their current GPR data and match it to that map and drive entirely based on the GPR. Almost as if you had put down you know, a, a line of paint on the ground and then the vehicle follows that line of paint. So that's good for certain applications that are quite simple. So think like um, mining use cases where you have the truck going from the excavation site to the to the dump site or the the plant where they're driving the same haul road route repeatedly. Terminal tractors and things like that. Exactly. Terminal tractors is another big use case. Port automation, convoying uh, is one. So like platooning cases. What's really nice about how we make our maps is there's no post-processing. So you can do sort of similar technologies using a LiDAR or a camera, but in a lot of cases, if you were to take uh, a LiDAR system, drive it on some college campus route, uh, and then have a, an algorithm extract features for localization, what you'd find is that certain portions of the route, you'd have parked cars that are blocking the LiDAR's view uh, that were there during mapping. And then when you go back to localize, those cars might not be there. So you, a lot of times you have to manually go and edit out the dynamic uh, or, or semi-dynamic objects out of your feature map. With GPR, we don't have to do that. And so you can build a map or anyone can build a map. So it could be just a construction worker, a, a mining operator uh, can drive a truck once manually in a mine site, and then that route's ready to be used. So it's a very fast way to, to iterate. Uh, so that's virtual rail. Um, the other way we can use GPR is more traditional, like a uh, GPS type of an output. So with that, we can map a, a bigger region. So we could map, say, an entire highway section or a seaport or something like this. And then anywhere that a GPR vehicle navigates over that map, we can output coordinates. Uh, so usually WGS84, like, like uh, GPS coordinates that can be brought into the, the uh, autonomy planner. So that's a more traditional type of a localization that some of our customers are more comfortable with. You're saying you'd, you could drive on that alone. Do you see this as being something that you would use in environments where you didn't have good GPS, GNS, or is it sort of as well as, or like how, how does it kind of fit into the technology stack? It can be integrated with GPS and other inputs, and some of our customers do that. In some of our applications, uh, there's no GPS at all. So for example, underground mining, which has been sort of one of the most challenging operational domains for autonomy has been underground mining. And it's because the environment changes so much. It's incredibly dusty and harsh, uh, very hard to have any um, robustness in, in that environment. And localization is a massive challenge because ground truth is pretty much impossible uh, underground. So in those applications, there's no GPS fusion at all. And it would be uh, purely GPR based and odometry. So we do use like a wheel speed and a IMU to help sort of supplement the position of our GPR scans relative to each other. It's uh, GPRs can be the only absolute reference. In most of our applications, that's the case. So genuinely, I've learned something new already. Uh, and I, <laughs> I guess some listeners would as well. Where do you see the market for that going? Is it something that you would see kind of all autonomous applications potentially bringing in as another 
part of the, that sort of sense of fusion? Or is it going to be only kind of certain applications where they really take a benefit from it? So do you, you know, is it a mass market thing that we'll see everywhere or something that will be underground mining and, you know, terminal tractors and stuff like that? Yeah. So it, there's really a broad uh, range of applications for it. And so I'll talk about some of the ones that we're most engaged with now. So the long term is definitely automotive. So uh, the, the highway automotive, so you could think like GM Super Cruise and, and uh, you know, Ford Blue Cruise, these type of uh, applications. Um, the real challenge with those is the packaging of the sensor. So the the sensor, it's only about an inch thick. Uh, it's 80 centimeters wide though. And so packaging that underneath the car requires a lot of uh, forethought from the beginning yeah. uh, to, to integrate. And then to get down to a cost point that's uh, appropriate for automotive passenger cars uh, as well. That application, I think it will come into play, but probably not until we see more level three, level four vehicles uh, where customers are are that's a bigger selling point of the vehicle. Um, the other industries, though, the ones that appeal to me the most are the markets that are already mature and already uh, deployed. So, for example, the mining, um, the off-road mining, specifically in sort of Australia, South America, you know, Komatsu and Caterpillar and, and some extent Hitachi have been doing this for decades. Um, they've had trucks deployed, you know, the business case is sound, making money and they have big challenges in these regions now with localization. Uh, so there's a lot of solar, um, like ionic scintillation events that can cause issues with GPS and bring those fleets down. Uh, and so GPR can be applied there to an existing business model that that holds up. And so we'll see it there pretty early. Similarly in seaports, so unloading containers off of ships and moving containers in seaports, this is a great application for it as well uh, because the robustness needs to be really high and. It's a really infrastructure-aided localization now. Um, that's a big case. The electric shuttles, uh, are, you know, they always seem to be electric, but the passenger shuttles that uh, are maybe a little bit slower speed, uh, usually under, say, 40 miles an hour. Um, these are good use cases as well because it's very easy for us to map uh, and, and track in different locations and get a really high safety integrity level with that. Um, so that's a, a big space for it. So really anywhere where autonomy is safety critical and it's fairly consistent, it makes a lot of sense uh, to apply uh, GPR. Could you tell us a bit more about the technology itself? I mean, it, what what is the sensing? You, you describe physically a, quite a broad sensor element. What, you know, what's in there? What's, what's making that work? Yeah, so we have a series of antennas uh, that uh, work in a very low wavelength of radar. Uh, we're in the hundreds of megahertz, the, the, the ultra wide band. Uh, and this allows us to penetrate uh, meters through the surface of the ground. Um, now for emissions reasons, we have to keep the power levels really low uh, so that the whole sensor is only outputting um, you know, nine watts. So it's a very low power sensor. There's no moving parts. Uh, so it's very robust. It's I. I often described as a, you know, a metal box with some, uh, with some wires in it. That's important for a lot of applications, especially when you're mounting on the underside of a vehicle that it can hold up for 10 years and, and really be a robust part of the, of an automobile. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in some cases, in some ways simpler than a traditional automotive radar, uh, like a 77 gigahertz radar. A big part of it must then also be the sort of analysis of and processing of that data is that you know are you, are you guys doing that or do you just how, how does that work 
Yeah. So there's kind of three phases to the, to applying the GPR data to the final position. So first is the detection. Um, so then, the, you know, we have RF chips on board the sensor that are, uh, you know, transmitting and receiving radar returns, sort of profiling the ground, creating that image, that GPR image. Then there's some signal processing that runs on board the sensor. And that's really the special sauce that took so long for GPR to develop. And that's extracting the data that's unique and that holds up or doesn't change over time. If you just took a sort of off-the-shelf GPR unit and tried to do localization, you'd find that the data is changing quite uh, quite rapidly for different regions, uh, and the sensor would be quite large and be hard to use. So there's a lot of signal processing that happens on board the sensor. Then the that data is transmitted usually to a secondary ECU. So like our development kits, we have a PC we ship, but you could run on board on the edge of the customer's computer. In some cases, we can run it inside the sensor and it runs the matching. And so that's taking the current GPR image and uh, matching that to a pre-existing map. And so that's sort of like a pattern recognition matching algorithm. And then once the match is complete, it will output a position, usually with a centimeter level of accuracy, uh, and forward that position to the customer uh, at up to 50 hertz. Uh, so 50 times per second, we can offer one centimeter accurate positions. And then that can then be fused with the GPS solution or other solutions, or it can be used directly. There's quite a lot of technology actually in the sensing element itself. Yeah, we make the hardware that the hardware is custom. Um, and has lots of years of development in it. And then there's a lot of signal processing and then matching algorithms and localization and mapping algorithms. So we have a, a really an, a, incredible team at GPR that, that covers a wide range of engineering from, from RF to mechanical design to, to algorithms and you know even, even some machine learning, so. Can you tell us a bit more about, about, about the business itself? I mean, you know, it's, it sounds amazing what they're doing. How, you mentioned you've been there for 18 months, but presumably the business has been going a whole lot longer. <laughs> so what's the origin story of the company? Yeah, sure. So the, the technology came from uh, MIT's Lincoln Laboratory uh, in, you know, out of Cambridge. <laughs> One of the inventors uh, was our co-founder, Byron Stanley. Uh, so he invented the technology while working, I believe, on a mine detection using ground penetrating radar uh, for the military. And uh, at some point, I think they noticed that the the returns from the radar were quite consistent on routes and came up with the idea of LGPR or localizing ground penetrating radar, uh, or maybe it's ground positioning radar, and started developing it at MIT, um, wrote some great papers about it. And then Byron um, worked with our other co-founder, Tark Bolat from, from Harvard to found the company in 2017. Uh, it was found, the name then was WaveSense. Uh, and since 2017, we've spent about first five years, really making the sensor uh, much smaller, much cheaper, much more robust, and and meet emission levels. Um, you know, while bringing the performance up, so that it could meet the automotive market. Uh, and so, that's really been the focus uh, since. Then, starting really at the beginning of this year, uh, we had a product that we were ready to commercialize, uh, and so, sort of scaling it to higher volumes, uh, so we can build more of them. Uh, testing them in more um, challenging environments, and then really making it a generic product that can be applied to a lot of different applications. That's something that 
takes a takes a really special type of uh, engineering skill to be able to have a product that can be easily integrated into a dump truck and then an electric shuttle and then a robo taxi and um, I actually just talked to a company about uh, putting on a, a legged robot, uh, you know, so there's all kinds of really cool stuff uh, that uh, we need to be applied to. So uh, that's a bit about the the company. We're, we're still out of Boston now. Um, we're in the Somerville area. We're around 30 employees. Have you got these things on application now? You know, so presumably you've been doing quite a lot of testing in-house and kind of making as you've been developing it, but a bit more about about that. I, I think I could talk a little bit about uh, the, the the spaces the customers operate in without without using their names at this stage. A lot of the operational domains we're, we're working in, we're learning with the customer about how does the GPR fall into the functional safety plan? You know, where, how is best to integrate it? Uh, should it be an independent um, uh, localization modality that gets used as a redundancy to the other localization or should it be fused? Um, should they do the fusion or should we do the fusion? Uh, these type of things. And and it varies a little bit from customer to customer. So some of the more mature engagements, uh, we have a, a great engagement with a defense contractor um, that, that's using it for um, sort of military vehicle, um, you know, convoying and, and uh, moving of autonomous uh, vehicles on, on the battlefield. Um, we have two electric shuttle companies uh, that that have systems that are working on, yeah, move electric shuttles of, of different sizes and, and different price points. We had a last mile delivery project, you know, delivering food. There's a uh, couple of mining cases. Um, so one of them's the rigid frame haul trucks that you see uh, those huge trucks in, in South America. Uh, then there's um, sort of a middle mining project, which is uh, moving um, you know, or kind of from a mine site to, to a coast using more traditional semi trucks, like level four trucking. Uh, and then one of our, uh, you know, biggest engagements now is for seaports. So, uh, guiding, uh, AGVs, which are the, the vehicles that move the, uh, containers from the cranes that unload the ships to the, to the stacks in the, in the different seaports around the world. And underground mining is, an, is another case that's quickly ramping up as they're sort of discovering the possibilities there. And, and and what stage is it at? Is it, it kind of are customers actually using it in working systems, or are you prototyping with them, or is it sort of pre-trials, or like you know, is there a fleet running on these things already, or where, where's that at? Yeah, so so none of them are in commercial use currently. They're all being used for development of future product, um, and there's a couple reasons for that. So the first is that some of the products that our customers are working on, uh, they haven't released yet. Right, so they're electric shuttle programs that they have, you know, big ambitions for high volumes, um, but they won't hit for another year or so. And we're the preferred GNSS denied solution for theirs. We still see them as sort of one projects. You know, the other case is, is that we've been delivering these commercial products just this year. So before this year, uh, it was much more research based, uh, sort of gaining understanding. Um, but we just released our our B sample sensor, which is the first one we'll enter any kind of volume production with. Yeah, so within within a year here, you know, next year we'll we'll have fleets uh, operating, and you know, we have a fleet of five vehicles as well that we use for for development. That's that's really fantastic. And in, in terms of where autonomous systems are at the moment, obviously it's a very hot topic with that ability to accurately position vehicles and detect objects and 
there's lots of different views on the best way of doing that and sensor achieving sensor fusion and lots of radar systems and all sorts of things but th this is genuinely sounds like something new that that isn't particularly out there and i guess it's uh it's, it's not every day you could you come across that so it's fascinating to to learn more about that and, and where you're at i guess it'd be interesting to know more about like where you see this going and, and and what your kind of thoughts are in terms of the technology development like what's your critical milestones in the next 12 24 months where we're really going with this there's uh one really big advantage to to what we're doing over other types of map and localization um and it's it's that our data layer is really small uh so the data coming from the radar it's it's, it's very unique and our field of view compared to other sensors is quite short so we're seeing three meters deep, um, but three meters, uh, you know, with a field of view, the width of the vehicle actually amounts to a pretty small amount of data. You compare that to like a LiDAR or a camera that's looking hundreds of meters. And so what that means is that our data layer for huge swaths, like entire cities, um, is very small. And that allows us to do a crowdsource map build and crowdsource map updating with over-the-air updates. So we could quickly get to a point where we can be building maps of entire cities or, or uh, road networks using the, the data from customer vehicles. So you would have a case where you install GPR units on um, you know, a few thousand uh, vehicles, and then those vehicles just in normal operation can expand the map to uh, in the entire you know, uh, highway system of the US, let's say. Um, so that's one of the, you know, the bigger ambitions is, is kind of building that out and becoming sort of the anchor or the ground truth for all other maps to operate on. And that's something that I, I feel, um, particularly passionate about because I think that this, this idea of we're constantly updating maps because the surface environment is changing really is a a huge limitation for HD mapping for autonomous driving. And it's very expensive to update maps as well. For example, if if you had a map of, uh, of a section of city and it's two years old, and then you want to go and update that section of maps, you drive a mapping vehicle through that has cameras and radars and LIDARs to detect lane markers and different features, it can be very difficult to align the old map data to the new map data. And you would think that, well, GPS can work, uh, a high accuracy GPS will actually because of the, the motion of tectonic plates and things like this, um, the GPS ground truth drifts kind of over time. And it's difficult to lock things together, especially if you're talking about long sections of, of data. You know, if you mapped 100 miles in one direction, it'd be difficult to match that up. So you're looking for other references or datums. And since GPR, we're using this subterranean data that's not changing over those timeframes, we can use that as an anchor to lock together different maps and become a sort of geo uh, reference for all other HD map layers. So that's one thing that really excites me. It's a little bit farther out on our roadmap. In the shorter term, we're really focused on the customers that have business models that are uh, proven right now, right? So examples of this are like the mining case, the seaports, um, you know, uh, the electric shuttles in some cases. Uh, those are really appealing where you know, we've been sort of uh, hearing the promise of some of the the more ambitious autonomy projects for years, and they're you know sort of delayed, delayed, delayed. 
And we're enabling technologies there. So we're still engaging there, but we know we can bring value to some of these customers today uh, that already have um, marketable business strategies in autonomy. Uh, and so that's really where we'll be in you know, a year's time is enabling certain companies to expand their autonomous offerings to more operational domains. So for example, you had an above ground mining autonomy system. Now you can sell that uh, mining system to below ground uh, or you can increase the availability. Um, similarly, uh, maybe you had the, the airport uh, logistics vehicles that move the baggage. Before, maybe you couldn't uh, sell those in uh, airports in the Northeast of the United States because of the snow and the winter conditions. And we can help enable those companies. So that's really where I think GPR will be applied first is where it's really easy to make that business case that uh, if you can enable localization in adverse weather or in this environment, then we can make more money. Uh, and so that's probably the, the short-term goal. Looping back almost on myself, it just kind of occurred to me thinking about what you we said. You mentioned about like a biped robot, but um, something just occurred to me as I recall talking to someone a few months ago, it was, it was about the application of robotics inside buildings, sort of more generally, and for things, you know, service robots for cleaning, um, you know, and stuff like that. And, and the, the, I specifically remember that one of the problems inside the building is that they, they kind of, the localization element is really difficult. Effectively, your cleaning robots end up very expensive because they need such, um, you know, comprehensive LIDAR, suite and all the rest of it that it just it actually doesn't kind of work out would your technology work in buildings you know in that, in that kind of application so for lower cost yeah absolutely so um some of our applications are indoors so we have uh, factory automation and warehouse automation fall into that category um actually one of the, the the biggest proof points for me when i joined was was parking garages so we mapped out a, a multi-story parking parking garage and drove autonomously in it at, at, with a GPR system. And um, parking garages, the multi-level garages, they're often built out of these spancrete, uh, that they're called uh, slabs, where they build these concrete slabs in a factory. Um, sometimes they're only, uh, you know, uh, maybe 50 centimeter or not even uh, 30 centimeters thick. So they're quite thin. And, you know, we're seeing meters normally. And they're all made in a factory and they're all, you would think would be very homogeneous and not lend well to localization. But actually in these multi-level garages, we're able to localize just fine, even with that small amount of data from the concrete. Um, and in some cases it works uh, even better than on the surface street. So that was really, uh, really quite cool uh, to see. And we tried it on like different levels and things to see. And um, we could in some cases see straight through a level and see cars below, which was kind of cool. But yeah, indoors it works. Uh, it works well, and and it's um, it's being evaluated for AMRs, which is uh, uh, automated mobile robots, and that's for uh, actually in a car factory, for for moving uh, yeah moving things around. So yeah, it works indoor as well. Like the, the, those robots in factories, quite often they end up putting like tapes or tracks down as a sort of cheap way of. So they're very they are guided. You know, they are they're very definitely guided, but the, those systems can be damaged. Um, and require maintenance. And then if you want to charge the, change the route, that can be a challenge. So that's where they, they found the GPR appealing is this, well, wait a minute, if I wanted to change the route or or have the you know robots go over here instead of over there, 
because all you have to do is, is drive that path once manually by manually driving it, and you have a track that all the vehicles can follow. Uh, and that was quite appealing. It's much cheaper than a LiDAR type system. Then. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yes. Uh, it, particularly once we get to, you know, volume, um, will be significantly cheaper. So, uh, for like automotive volume, uh, we should be on par with like a premium automotive radar today. I'm going to go away and, uh, lie down and dock and drum and absorb all of that. Thank you. One absolutely, uh, amazing business and, um, yeah, thanks so much for telling me about your technology. But definitely sounds like it's going to be one to watch for the future. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I, I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, to any, to any listeners that are interested in learning more about it, you know, feel free to reach out. You know, my email is noah at gpr.com. So pretty easy. Uh, and um, yeah, there's there's lots of cool applications and, and uh, research projects and things we're, we're looking forward to in the future with this. So fantastic. Super fascinating. Absolutely brilliant. And so you have managed to, uh, you blow my mind, which is quite hard to do, but, uh, just something that I had not even, even heard of, let alone thought about. So, uh, amazing. Definitely going to keep a close eye on you guys in the future. Thanks, Noah. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ryan.